If you have a, a paper or a pen or your phone or something like that, take a second and think about what are the things that make you happy? What are the things that you really, like these things make me happy? Things like rainy days. <laughs> uh, what are the things, you might even just think about them in your head if you want, if you're not a visual person and need them written down. There are things that all of us have that just right away uh, they, we enjoy them. Or, or they're things that sometimes they surprise us, like you didn't think that this would be so awesome, and then all of a sudden it's like, I really, really like this thing, or I like uh, the way this is working in our culture, or maybe just in your own life. Uh, some people really like time with their family, or some people really like uh, when they've been working hard and they achieve a goal or reach a, 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 a point in their life where they're like, now I'm happy. Uh, it is our relationship with happiness, I think, is kind of a strange thing. I've got all sorts of things that make me happy, and they're usually uh, really simple <laughs> and simple-minded. Uh, being down 3-1 in the finals and, and winning. Uh, pretending like I had something to do with the, my favorite team actually doing well, right? Like, and, and using the word us when I refer to them, like as if I'm contributing. Uh, the, uh, uh, it, it's that kind of thing that we just, uh, for n- some unknown reason, we decide to let things outside of ourselves affect our experience of life. Uh, this is a part, wives, don't say amen out loud, but when your husband is cheering for that team and that team loses, and you just know, like, it's a long week to next Sunday, you know, <laughs> like... And, and then you're like, oh, why did my husband have to be a fan of, you know, this team because they stink every year, you know. And you try to raise your kids to cheer for the Patriots because they cheat to win. And you're like, this, at least we're happy. Um, at least you're happy, right? <laughs> but the, there is, uh, happiness is this strange thing. And, and if you grew up, like, in church, if you're like a youth group all-star or something uh, like I was, you can sometimes get into a place where, um, there's this unwritten thing in, in contemporary Christianity where it's like, we have joy, not happiness. And joy is this like unhappy happiness uh, that you have even though life stinks, right? And you're, it's a denial of reality in a way. And, and, and that's not true at all, but it's your experience. And so there's this kind of, uh, it's never said out loud, but it's kind of underneath everything that, Life is horrible, all the heathens are having all the fun, and, but someday we get to go to heaven, take that heathens, right? And you're like, someday we get something good even though right now it's all just bad or it's all substandard, right? And you get, it's kind of, I was a youth pastor for a long time and Christian music labels would send me posters to put up on the youth group wall and they said, if you like this band, and they'd list all the bands everybody liked, then you'll love this band, and they listed Christian imitation bands of these bands, right? Uh, And so we would say, well, I really like this band, uh, but I can listen to this band because they use the word Jesus in their lyrics. They live like heathens, but they use the word Jesus in their lyrics, and so it's much better. Uh, And that's great and all that, yada, yada, yada. I don't have time for that kind of an argument. But uh, what happens is we end up creating a Christian culture that is a safe parody of, of what reality is, or a safe parody of the world that we live in. And then, 
you get to be a pastor. And this is one of the things that makes me really, really happy. And you're preaching a series, and you're getting everyone, hey, we're going to do this book. And uh, we're reading this book together uh, called Nothing to Prove. It's by someone named Jenny Allen. A lot of you have picked it up. Not many of you have picked it up at our Go table because we have done this before and bought like multiple copies and nobody buys them and this is the one that seems to have clicked. Uh, so there are tons of books from the last series at the Go table that you can pick up, none from this one. <laughs> but, uh, so if you're really interested in Elisha's life, uh, that we have resources for you. Uh, and you can probably get them at a discount. <laughs> but if, if you want this book, you can download it instantly on your Kindle or on Audible. and I, I listened to it before I read it and things like that. Or you can just prime it, and it'll be here in a couple days. All right, I think we have a Christian bookstore in the mall, and they might have copies of it too. Um, but there is, uh, I say think because our mall seems to rotate stores really quickly. But uh, the, uh, uh, this book kind of talks about our relationship with our, not just our relationship with God, but our relationship with our need to make ourselves acceptable to God. I think believing that God loves us the way we are is one of the most difficult parts of Christianity. We say it's like the good news and things like that, but believing that someone knows the worst about you, but still thinks the best about you, is really, in a practical level, difficult to receive and difficult to understand. It's difficult just to sit there and say, me, with all of my shortcomings and all of my failings, the God of the universe sent his son and his son died for my sin when I am far, far from deserving of that level of love. And so we want to get ourselves to a point where we're deserving of that love. And all of us have these different kind of standards that we go to and different places, like if I was just this, if I just went to church this many times, or if I just knew this many memory verses, or prayed this long, or did, like if, if I did, the, and we have a, a ladder of standards, and what you find is, in any relationship, not just your relationship with God, when you reach those invisible standards that you make, or imaginary standards that you make, there never arrives a time of satisfaction, there never arrives a time of saying, now I'm happy, or now this is good. Because your uh, status in your relationship is based on an achievement. And when things are based on achievement, there's always a suspicion that someday I'm not going to meet that achievement or meet that standard, or the goalposts are going to move. And the standard's going to be over here now, and the standard's going, and I don't, and God is so great, and I will never measure up to that. And a lot of us burn out our relationships. A lot of people turn away from God uh, because of that, not because God loves them, uh, sorry, not because they don't believe in God, but because, I, I said that completely backwards. I think a lot of people turn away from God because God loves them, even though they are who they are. I think that's, and they might not say it that way. They might say it more like, I can't go near God because God loves this person. And I know this person very, very well. I have people in my family who've turned away from God because there's other people who have been turned to God late in their lives. And they've said, if God accepts that guy who should not be accepted, <laughs> it's the thief on the cross rule. There's a, when Jesus dies, there's two guys next to him. And one guy 
kind of repents to Jesus and asks him to remember him, and Jesus says, that's all it takes, you're going to heaven. And you're like, what the heck, right? If you were a youth group all-star, that's your least favorite Bible character because you didn't drink, you didn't smoke, right? You didn't do anything that was fun. That's the way it's presented. <laughs> and this guy who got to do all the fun things gets to go to heaven too? What a ripoff, right? And so you fall away thinking, right before I die, I'm going to say what the thief on the cross says, right? And then you live this life of terror, of sudden death, right? But anyways, and then you need therapy, and it's your youth pastor's fault, and I apologize on behalf of all of them. One of the fun things in my life, though, is going through these books and doing this together and then coming across the preacher's favorite passage. There's three or four favorite passages for preachers. The beginning of the book of Judges uh, is one of them, which you can read on the weekend, next weekend, or during the week. Uh, but John 2 is one of those. And one of my favorite sermons I ever heard in my whole life, I'll remember it forever, was a guy named Steve Chalk at a pastor's convention in San Diego, and he preached on this passage in John 2. And if you don't know, uh, John 2, John is a gospel that's written by a guy named John, which might not be obvious, but it is, and John is Jesus' best friend, and John never mentions himself in the book, and it's a writing tool, he never mentions Jesus' mother by name, it's always the mother of Jesus, and he uh, uh, refers to things in a very literary way, like he was a good writer, which uh, you might think that the people who wrote the Bible just were like inspired, like they put on their Holy Spirit headphones and wrote whatever they heard, but uh, that's one view. But I think there are different views that God used the skills and abilities of people. John, who wrote this book, also wrote the last book in the Bible, Revelation, which is an incredible piece of writing in a completely different style of writing. And so he had skills in that area, and his literary skills will show up in this. But John, and the reason that every preacher who preaches through the Bible and eventually will go to uh, heaven and meet the disciples and stuff, John will be the one, and this will be the thing that we don't appreciate from John, but he includes Jesus' first miracle, which the video uh, talked about, Jesus turning water to wine. Uh, I tell all senior pastors that this is the week you take vacation and you let the youth pastor do it. Uh, because it is very, most of the time in our culture, because we come from a prohibition history, uh, most of the time, we are so focused on that wine element, right? Uh, and not so much here in the Pacific Northwest. I went to Bible college in the South, a little bit different than here. Uh, we hide our drinking in the South. Uh, here, everybody just flaunts it. It's, it's one of, like, honestly, I giggle a little bit. I grew up in Canada where the drinking age is a, kind of a suggestion, and, uh, and there is, it's, it's a completely different culture when it comes to alcohol because uh, we don't have the history that America does. And it's a little, it's a click towards European in comparison to the United States. Uh, and so we uh, don't have the relationship with alcohol that America does, the history with alcohol that America does. And so when you read this story in America, there are people, friends of mine, who spend loads of time uh, going through some cultural stuff to show that it wasn't like wine, wine. It was like strong grape juice, right? Like it wasn't fermented enough. Like Jesus made the water to wine, which is really difficult because uh, the people are also like, 
this is great wine, like the people who said it, this is great wine, right? And they didn't say, this is great strong grape juice. But, um, and we get into all sorts of uh, complicated things because in the story, and I'll read the scripture in a second, in the story, we're at a wedding. And a wedding then, and we're coming up on wedding season, and, and uh, weddings then were a lot different than they are now. Here it's like an afternoon and we're getting through this thing, and we're moving on, right? And uh, then it was like a week. <laughs> Jeez. you think I'd be a professional by now, but now I feel like this should be a really good point, and it's not going to be. Right? Like, this is just, we're just in background. All right, so we'll turn up another light later when we got a good point. I don't know how this stuff happens. Uh then, now weddings are really short, then weddings were very, very long. And you can imagine, people walked from place to place, and so you're not going to walk for a day to get to a wedding that's 30 minutes, right? Like you're walking for a day, this wedding had better be something fantastic. And so weddings would go on and on and on, and people would bring things to the feast. They didn't have a registry, you weren't outfitting your home, you are probably putting an addition on the family home, and just moving into that, you weren't setting out on some kind of new adventure. You were just moving forward in life. And so weddings would last an entire week. And in this story, the, we're getting at least midway through this wedding, and they're starting to run out of alcohol. Now, it's not like they don't plan. If they're running out of alcohol, that means the Christian kids are all thinking, this has been a really fun wedding that we haven't been able to participate in so far, <laughs> right? Like, if you plan for a seven-day party and you're running out of alcohol halfway through or even three-quarters of the way through, all right, you're glad that Instagram hasn't been invented yet. <laughs> and Jesus, in that crowd, takes water and turns it into alcohol, which tastes better, so that the people who've already got a buzz going can get buzzier. <laughs> I'm uncomfortable with this. <laughs> when I get to heaven, this will be something where I say to Jesus, I'm uncomfortable with this. <laughs> and I'll probably get in trouble for that, but that's not the only thing I'm getting in trouble for when I get to heaven, right? Like, we have wine barrels in church, so. <laughs> the, when we, there is a, like, Jesus wouldn't be able to be a pastor in our denomination. Not only because, like, he wore a robe all the time and sandals, you know, but he seemed to do things that everyone around, like drunkenness wasn't cool under Jewish law, and these were all Jewish people. And I don't, it doesn't say that they were drunk, it just says they've had too much to drink. And yet Jesus provides, here, this tastes even better. Let's see what happens. And we all know what happens. Like, we don't need to fill the blanks in on that. Yet here's Jesus providing. Now, if we just discuss the alcohol question, we end up being boring people. And no, I don't mean to be rude to my friends or to you if you're one of those people who's done tons of research on the alcohol in John chapter 2. I find that to be the most boring part of the story. Uh, just like in life, I find alcohol to be the most boring part of people's lives. Uh, people love to spend a lot of time talking about it and thinking about it. 
Uh, one of my other favorite things is to follow Christian kids on uh, Facebook when they hit the age where they're allowed to start drinking and they take pictures of all their alcohol. And it's just like, why are you, like every time you drink, you're taking a picture of it. That's a little bit awkward for the rest of us. Um, like, I have other friends in my family that do that, and that's called alcoholism. Uh, so, but, uh, so if that's you, when I was a youth pastor, whenever kids would graduate, they would get tattoos and take pictures of them and send them to me. This was when you were newly able to take pictures and send tattoos. And they were always small tattoos because they were chicken. Uh, but, uh, but it was this weird relationship that they had where this was, this was a long time ago now, but the, the Christian rebellion was tattoos. And now all the Christians have tattoos, so now the Christian rebellion is taking pictures of alcohol, right? And I'm just like, okay, there you go. Like, I know these people, and that's a big glass, and they can't drink that much water. So I know they're not drinking that much alcohol, so I don't know what's going on there. But let's read through this. We're not going to figure out what Jesus is doing, right? Uh, like, in the moment. But I, what we're going to actually talk about is what Jesus is doing in a large story kind of way. And I want to start with the first three words, all right? Uh, four words. On the third day. This is the same way that John talks about the resurrection. On the third day, the disciples went to the tomb. And John, in my opinion, uses these kinds of words intentionally because he's a good writer. There's other people that disagree with me, really, really smart people that disagree with me. But I can't get away from his intentionality in his writing because he's skilled at writing. When he says, on the third day, he's saying this after, and he wrote this after the life of Jesus and the resurrection. This wasn't like a diary that he was doing as he was going through it. And in fact, there are some people who think this was John's wedding, and that's kind of why the family was there. We don't know if that's true or not, but he certainly wouldn't be keeping a diary at his wedding. He would be celebrating and greeting people and doing those kinds of things. What John does, I think, with this language is bring our minds to Jesus' death and resurrection. And what happens in Jesus' death and resurrection, according to Jesus himself, is a transition from an old way of relating to God, and through Jesus, there's a new way of relating to God, which Jesus uses the word new covenant. The old covenant is based on Old Testament law and forgiveness, of God's forgiveness through Old Testament law with sacrifices and religious laws. And the new covenant is based on uh, not those laws, not that there aren't any laws, but those laws have been fulfilled through Jesus' death and resurrection, which is a very, very long topic. Let me read this. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Just so you know, I love this too, because my son tells me, Dad, make more wine. My daughter says they have no more wine. It's that uh, uh, there's a relationship that Mary has with her son where she doesn't tell him what to do. She just infers the problem so suggestively that if you can't think of what to do, I don't know what's wrong with you. <laughs> you can imagine Jesus' frustration. Jesus' mother says to him, they have no more wine. Woman, which is not... A, that was a normal way to speak in his culture, an offensive way in ours. Woman, why do you involve me, Jesus replied. My hour has not come. His mother refuses to listen and says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I, 
I like this is one of my favorite interactions of Jesus because even Jesus's mom, you know, <laughs> even Jesus's mom comes over. They're out of wine, walking away. What mom? Ah, woman. Why? Ah. And Jesus is like 30, but he still acts like this, right? Like he's not married. He hasn't grown up. Uh, and his mother's walking away, and you just do whatever he tells you, and leaves. And Jesus is there with the servants, and the servants are like, sorry, man. And Jesus is like, ugh, mothers. <laughs> That's not in here. This is another thing I'm probably going to get in trouble for. <laughs> Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, about the size of these barrels, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some water out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so, and the master of the banquet, so the MC of the event, tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it was come, through, come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine, after the guests have had too much to drink, you have saved the best till now. And what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs. Seven, there's seven signs included in the book of John. This is the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So there's water for ceremonial washing, which we don't have ceremonial washing. We have our ceremonial thing is uh, the hand sanitizer stations. And if you do a hand sanitizer station and you rub it on your hands, you're situationally clean. We, we say it's not a religion, but try going to the bathroom and coming out and serving people without using the hand sanitizer, right? Like, you'll find that people are rather religious all of a sudden. When the, they would have these jars, and people would be clean already, but it would be a ceremonial cleanliness that they would do to remind themselves of God purifying them through their adherence to religious law in the Old Testament and the sacrifices to cover for their sins. Sacrifices for all sorts of sins, even sacrifices for sins that they might not realize they committed. And so as people came into this massive week-long party, there would be these ceremonial washing jars with water, and in their culture that water, a lot of times that water would be received in certain ways it couldn't have been come through certain pipes or things like that it had to, sometimes they would say it has to be rainwater or it has to be from a running river you can't just take it from a puddle or, or the, these kinds of things they had rules for the water and the rules for their religious ceremony and they would use this water to in a way baptize themselves or baptize their hands or their head or take the water and put it on top of their head uh, some, there were ritualistic times when they baptized themselves the way we baptize, get completely underwater, get completely out. But they would, in a way, baptize as a reminder parts of themselves, like their hands or their feet or their dishes or uh, things like that to remind themselves of the sacredness of those things towards God because of God's work in their life. And the water would represent the purifying, because it's pure water, the purifying work of God. And because they're a little bit empty, it lets us know that these people had gone through this. And symbolically, it's a people who've gone through the Old Testament laws and the Old Testament regulations, the Old Covenant. And Jesus fills the jars because they don't need to be used anymore. 
and the servants dip the pitcher in and take the pitcher out. And if you read the way the language is, the water in the jar doesn't turn to wine. The water that's drawn out turns to wine. We like to think that Jesus created hundreds of gallons of wine, right? Like those of us who drink our wine out of boxes are going, this is where it's at, right? Like, where do I sign up for this Jesus? <laughs> wine out of box. like seriously, have some self-respect. <laughs> I don't even like wine, so I'm going to mock all of it. But, uh, and that's not a theological decision. It tastes like garbage, but good luck with that. Uh, when... <laughs> When Jesus fills these jugs, he doesn't necessarily, according to the original language, who knows what actually happened because we weren't there to look at it, but when it's drawn out, it seems to be, according to the original languages, when it's drawn out, it's transitioned into wine. So the old, the sim symbolism is that the old isn't changed. The old is fulfilled. And drawing out of that old, we have the new, which is brought and the, to the master of ceremonies at the wedding, and the observance is that while this was good, this is great. There's not an insulting, like, oh, you gave us junk wine at the beginning. It's you gave us good wine at the beginning, and now you've come up with this great wine. Jesus certainly doesn't take the Old Testament and say, that's garbage. And anyone who thinks that way is missing what Jesus is doing. He's not throwing away the old. He's saying the old was pointing you to this, to the new, to this is where it's at, and Jesus is creating a new covenant, which is symbolized in this story by this wine. We fast forward, and the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a cup of wine, and he said, this, this cup is the cup of the new covenant which is achieved, Jesus didn't use that word, uh, which we are ushered into through the blood of Christ. The literal, uh, this might sound gross, but the literal shedding of blood on the cross and during his torture and from his crown of thorns, when Jesus literally did that, the symbolism is this new covenant that Jesus is establishing. At the same dinner, Jesus takes a piece of bread and he said, this bread is my body which is broken for you and his body the next morning by the time the next morning came around his body was being broken through his torture and his abuse and his eventual crucifixion and death and for thousands of years hundreds and hundreds of years christians have been doing the same practice over and over and over again as we take small pieces of bread or small pieces of crackers and we hold them and we say this is Christ's body. And there's all sorts of theological about that. Who cares? Whether it turns into Christ's body or literally or not, I don't think Jesus was trying to create good doctrine as proven by giving all the wine to the drunk people. But when Jesus said, this is my body, we remember Jesus' sacrifice participating in the ritual that Jesus established. And in a way, what we call communion today or the Eucharist or the Mass is really established by Jesus as a ritual that we participate in 
that all Christians around the world, a lot of Christians today, and all Christians throughout history have participated in. And we see this, we use a word, it's a means of grace, meaning God somehow, we don't understand this, grants grace to us through the eating of a small cracker and some juice. Some use wine. We use juice. Uh, we, have, we live in a culture where people struggle with alcoholism and it's wildly serious and we have no intention of causing anyone to stumble in that area and so we just use juice. Uh, and, and we use gluten-free crackers. <laughs> but w- I don't think the gluten in the cracker was what Jesus was referring to, so we can go without it. Or the alcohol in the, in the cup. I don't think that was Jesus' point. And so when we participate in something like communion, we are moved into the very, I think, we are moved into the very presence of Jesus in a real and tangible way, moved into what he calls his new covenant. Where we're not spending our time trying to measure up. Because this is what the people who Jesus was talking to, this is how they lived. And it's not that they didn't like it. They loved knowing that here's the standard, and if I get up to that standard, I'm good with God. The problem is in our lives, we have these things that say, we don't have a religious standard. Many of us don't have a religious standard. We have a happiness standard. And if I get here, and I get here, and I get here, if, if there's this number on the bench press and this number on the scale and this number in the bank account and this number of children and this number of job and this number you just kind of have these standards and you think if I measure up to that then I'm good and Jesus don't quote me on this but Jesus literally says stop drinking your wine out of boxes and come over here Stop settling for this cheap stuff that you're doing in your life that will never actually satisfy you and come over here where you will no longer need to suffer or panic or wonder about your security in Christ. The real, like the question for the Christian and the question that I have for you today is not, are you good enough? The question is, do you believe that God loves you? And I think that's a much more difficult question because some of you are pretty dang good. Like you're offended that there's wine barrels in church. Good job. (laughs) Some of you were excited. Bad job. (laughs) The truth is, the the standard isn't the thing that establishes your worthiness of love before God. God loves, and our response to that love determines our destiny. It's popular in a culture right now to say God loves everybody, and you can live however you want, and God still loves you. God loves everybody, and that includes everybody that you hate. God loves people that he shouldn't. God loves, this is going to be offensive, all the people in hell. He shouldn't. Well, he should for some of them, but not some of them. Some of them should be there, and we should not love them, right? Good job. No one said amen. Good job. But God 
extends this to us, and it's this kind of request of, I have something better than anything that's available anywhere, this new covenant that is sealed in my blood, and your response to it determines your experience of eternity, and your experience of now, and your experience of eternity. And so God loving you isn't the question. You believing that God loves you is the question. And I think we say, yes, I believe God loves me, but the way we live denies our belief that God loves us. Anytime where we live in a way where we're trying to measure up to a standard, anytime where we look at our sorrows in life and we think that is too much, God isn't paying attention to me. Anytime we look at our victories in life and we say, I am so awesome at this, God must be impressed by me. And we don't say that out loud. We're much smarter than that. But anytime we have things going on in our life that seem to take more truth in our souls than the love of God, like all of that is where we actually deny our reception of the love of God. I really think, like, we're going to participate in communion. The band's going to come out in here in a second, and we're going to sing together. And while we're singing, we're going to participate in communion. If you've never done communion with us before, uh, we've never done it on wine barrels, so don't freak out. But uh, we come up to the tables, and there'll be two at the back, or two at the front here, sorry, and one at the back, so you can go to a, a space, and, and we can take a small piece of gluten-free bread and a small cup of grape juice, and you can return to your seat. And a lot of us enjoy praying just privately for a second to Jesus and saying just kind of a prayer of thanks and a prayer of forgiveness and a prayer of uh, living into that new covenant. And then you participate at your own time and the band will sing and then uh, we're going to sing two songs and at the end of those two songs the time is over and actually church is over. But we're going to respond to God in this time. And so you can get up and come up to the front if you want. The only rule is we don't do lines. Uh, it's much more of a family atmosphere. And so if people are on one side, just go around them and go to the other side. And uh, you'll be participating and taking bread and looking at people in the eye and we're in this together and we're participating in this together. Because this communion table, for us, according to the scripture, is open to all who believe that God loves them who have responded to that love by putting their faith and trust in Jesus. It's open to all of us who are horrible at being followers of Jesus. It's open to all of us who are horrible followers of Jesus because we think we're awesome followers of Jesus. There are going to be people who come to this table who are achieving all the things that are on your happiness list and they're still sad. There's going to be people who come to this table who are happy, who are achieving none of the things on your happiness list. And there's going to be you. And you're going to come to the table, and at the same point, you're going to take a piece of bread that Jesus said, this is my body that is broken for you. And you're going to take a cup that Jesus said, this is the new covenant. And we're all going to pray the same thing that we say, God, sometimes I don't believe it. Please make me believe it. Make my heart actually believe that you love me. Let me pray for us that way. Let's stand. I'll pray, and then we'll open the tables. God, I pray that you would take over what is necessary to take over in us. Literally make our hearts believe. 
There are places in every single one of us uh, that fall short, not just not fall short of performing in a way that you accept, but fall short of being willing to receive your love. That we hold on to this need to impress you or this need to impress ourselves or impress the people around us. And I pray that in these moments you would free us from that and allow us to experience your new covenant. Not that the old is bad, but the old is pointed to something very, very good. And allow us to live in who you are and live in your love for us. God, make our hearts believe. Amen.